Hey folks, uh, welcome to Listening Party, uh, broadcasting straight out of uh, Kingston, Ontario. Uh, this is our new show where we, uh, it's like a book club for albums, where we uh, all listen to an album, we come back, we talk about it, we discuss, and that's what you're listening to right now, Listening Party. This week, folks, I'm very, very excited uh, because we are listening to my, my personal own favorite band, uh, which is The Mountain Goats. Um, He's even wearing a Mountain Goats t-shirt I, for I, those that All he owns is Mountain Goats t-shirts. That's right. Uh, that's my whole wardrobe, much to the chagrin of everyone who knows me. Uh, but yeah, we <laughs> are listening uh, this week to songs for Pierre Chauvin. Uh, I believe his name is pronounced, uh, which is the 18th full album release uh, from the Mountain Goats. This was released a couple uh, months ago. Uh, right during the start of the uh, pandemic uh, that we're currently in uh, because uh, the goats were originally uh, supposed to be getting together to start to record a new album. But of course that didn't happen and they canceled their tour. I was supposed to see them uh, in El Paso. That didn't happen. Um, so uh, JD put John Darnell, uh, the lead singer of the Mountain Goats. Pardon me. <laughs> yeah, your boy yeah. JD. Yeah, some of us aren't close personal friends with the band, so well, we don't know these like fun little. Yeah, yeah. No, what's yeah, the circumference yeah. of his firstborn's head, Dean? <laughs> I bet you know. He asked me not to say on. Air. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, he put out this uh, record just to support the band and the crew, and uh, all the proceeds uh, went to just keeping everyone's mouths fed, basically. Which is cool. Uh, but yeah. So we have one Mountain Goats super fan. Yes. We have hello. one Mountain Goats regular fan. And then we also have two people. I, I'm going to assume, Steph, that you haven't really dug into the Mountain Goats before. No, this is this is definitely the first time. You want to give like um, a quick introduction, Dean? I will. I will. Uh, so I could spend the next two hours just talking about this, but I'm going to keep it brief. Uh, so uh, the Mountain Goats uh, was founded by John Darnielle uh, in... Um, uh, Pomona, I think. I don't know exactly where, which city. Uh, but uh, uh, John Darnell was living in uh, Southern California. Uh, he had uh, just started college. He was uh, studying classics. Uh, and uh, he's just started writing songs in his spare time. Uh, he would put them out on cassette. Uh, he would record them on uh, his Panasonic RX FT500. Uh, which has become sort of an artifact to Mountain Goats fans. All of his early stuff was recorded on this thing. Um, that's a that's a boombox, is it not? Yeah, it's an old boombox that he would record on, uh, and it was all like very rough, uh, very rough cut. Uh, they were like cassette tapes. Uh, it would be like thirty minutes, and each song would be two minutes long. Uh, they're like, you know, very very like jagged sort of uncouth guitar strumming and slapping by the uh, way dean is playing the air guitar for did, all of us right now so you could know what i was talking about when yeah. i say guitar um <laughs> and like there's themes of like mythology there's latin quotes uh, a lot of geography weaved into all of the music um th and then uh once we reach uh, as you were saying uh frankie all hail west texas mm -hmm. and uh tallahassee this was, uh, so the band uh, started in 1991, and then by 2002, 2003, we reached this sort of breaking point. It's like the Mountain Goats are a really cool band because they've been around for so long and their sound has changed so much as so many more musicians have joined the project. 
because uh, the Mountain Goats used to be just JD, and he would call himself the Mountain Goats. But uh, as the project has grown over time, it's almost like digging through like geological epochs. Like you're you're digging through the sediment, and you're finding different layers of sound as the bands progress, it's which even, I really really like. Like it's such a big difference just between like All Hail and Tallahassee. Yeah. Like the sonic difference between those albums is extreme. So those uh, albums were released in the same year. Uh, and uh, All Hail West Texas was sort of the last of the classic Mountain Goats, as considered by diehard fans. Uh, it was th- the last thing c- recorded on the Panasonic before he put it away forever and moved into the studio. And it was also the last uh, record that only had uh, JD performing. It was just him and his guitar. Uh, he was recording in his living room in Iowa because his girlfriend at the time, and now wife, was away on- at a hockey tournament. Uh, so he was just bored at home and made one of the greatest albums ever written. Oh, that's, low key. that's very wholesome. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, the why I'm telling you all of this is because for this record, uh, now um, in present day, like 2010s Mountain Goats has become uh, much more of a, of a studio band. Like they still perform live and are great, uh, but they have a lot of like um, horn arrangements and choirs that are joining and it's become much more of a production. Yeah. Uh, Even right. like Beat the Champ, like the like the brass arrangements on that album is insane. And it finally felt like they had enough money, like with Goths and Beat the Champ to like do what they wanted musically instead of just having to do what they could do with what they had. Exactly. And M- Matty Douglas uh, joined the group and he's a very talented multi-instrumentalist and he's like composed all of those parts. It's very, very cool. They had on the latest record before this one in League with Dragons, they had Owen Pallet produce. Mm-hmm. Uh, nice. And yeah. It's Isn't a, there some crazy oboe on there too? Yeah, it's, it is a yeah. wicked record. Uh, but this is a return to form uh, because uh, JD uh, went back to his house where he had the old Panasonic uh, and he decided to see if it still worked. Uh, and he found that it would only work if he sat it on its side, like upright. Uh, <laughs> then the the tape deck uh, w- would be able to record without having like this screeching sound over the mix. Oh, yeah. Uh, and as such, we've it's almost like I, I don't even like it is like a return to form as it's as if like. Uh, a director who's been making art house films for 10 years, like went back and made another like killer block. This is like the Mad Max Fury, Fury Road mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> of uh, Mountain Goats. And records. everything else was happy feet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so we're very, very excited. Right, oh, right. Um, Recording direct to cassette is fun, but it's also very challenging mm-hmm. only because you have no idea if it's working until you're all done. Right. And you also have one take. Like you could you could re-record, but you have one take. You can't really edit it or do anything fancy with it at all. Like it's if the sound that it's picking up is going directly onto right. the cassette, and you have to hope for the best. Yeah. Even all the hiccups and all the you know the whirring of the the cassette tape and stuff like that, especially because cassette decks are not maintained mm-hmm. <laughs> at all. They're they're yeah. quite an outdated system, right? Like the cassette deck itself essentially becomes an instrument, right? Right. Like it, it adds oh, yeah. so much sound to it that you were not planning for. And you're like, well, I guess I got to work with this now. And and that's why the Panasonic has become like such a, a figure in like the heads and in the imaginations of the Mountain Goats fan. Uh, because it is, it's such a different sound when he's recording on the boombox than when he's in the studio. And it becomes sort of part of the, the mythos, but also just the feel 
uh, and the texture of the sound. It becomes a, a character all its own. Yeah. Uh, and uh, another instrument, like we you said. We talked a little bit about uh, before we recorded this, like you were saying that it was about um, isolation in a time of isolation and how the sound like of the boombox really um, creates a lot of that sound. And yeah. It really comes back to that a lot from like the earlier stuff where you you feel like you're alone in the garage with him and you're like, oh, this yeah. is heavy, but it's just like a, an electronic buzz. Or, yeah, you found like a box of cassettes in like somebody's garage or at a yard sale and you're sitting down listening to them, right? It it does feel like a lot more personal like that. Like um, people debate whether JD is like the Mound Goats are lo-fi or whether they are pioneers of the lo-fi Yeah, we were talking genre, about this earlier. Uh, which like I don't really listen to a lot of lo-fi. I just listen to this band. Uh, but for, for the Mound Goats, I think uh, there's always a sense of urgency like in the earlier records, uh, JD would write a song, then run home and record it within like 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And if there was any delay or something, the magic would be lost and we'd just like never hear that song. Right. Uh, and this record brings some of that back because he, he talks about in interviews how he would write a song that day and then record it and then like go and play with his kids or whatever. Yeah. It reminds me of some uh, Modest Mouse trivia. Like mm-hmm. their early stuff was Isaac Brock, the singer of Modest Mouse, and he was also the original writer. I don't know if he's still the writer, but um, they uh, he would call his home phone and sing a melody over the phone in mm-hmm. order to get it recorded on his recording machine and th- like his answering machine. And that's how he would remember how songs would go for his early stuff. Right. And sometimes he actually, notes. yeah, yeah. And sometimes he would put that in the album as like the starting of a song would be his, him humming the tune and like singing some of the lyrics that he thought would be a good song. And then it cuts right into the actual recording. Um, so it kind of reminds me of that, but that was like when it came to, you're talking about lo-fi, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why do you think there's, any kind of contention on if this is a lo-fi album or not uh it's generally because the people who are really into lo-fi are really pedantic Ooh. Uh, and Ooh. Well, i know i know you're I know. beefing I with just, the lo-fi fans uh, i i literally i don't know about anything about lo-fi um right uh, there's some bands that people call lo-fi that i really enjoy mm-hmm. but i'm you know, I, I I don't have a, a dog in that fight. I was going to say, I was just going to ask you because I was like, I was reading this. And I was like, whoa, why are we calling this lo-fi? Yeah. And then I went back and I looked and I was like, going to ask you if you thought like the really early stuff, like Nine Black Poppies or like, was it Ghana? And like yeah, the stuff Ghana. from like the mid 90s. Is that also lo-fi now? Because wasn't it folk when it came out? Wasn't yeah, that what it was originally it's labeled? It's just weird for me to like have him like genre slip in that way where I'm like, just using a boombox it's okay guys. yeah exactly yeah he like he like i think jd has said like he doesn't identify as a lo-fi artist especially, like obviously because he's like moved away from the boombox yeah. within the last 20 years uh but yeah it was just like he that was the tool he had available to him so he used it well it reminds me of um i don't know it, it's it's pretty it, within my circle it's easy to assume that people have listened to daniel johnson Mm. right Mm -hmm. Um, this album has strong daniel johnson vibes so so daniel johnson um he became popular uh he was a he had schizophrenia he was like a religious fanatic he had a lot of like mental health problems and he would record a casio keyboard 
a microphone through a boombox. Like yeah. that's how he recorded, and he would make his own mix cassettes and stuff like that, hand them out at different types of uh, shows, usually outside of shows, and like do like busking gigs and stuff like that. And it was always very weird um, lyrically. A lot of the time, most of the songs are about like alienation, uh, not feeling like you belong, and stuff like that. And the quality of it would be considered lo-fi just because it was recorded through a boombox, right? But, like, I was thinking about it earlier because we were talking and and Frankie tells me, she's like, I don't see this as a lo-fi album. And I was like, well, it's lo-fi at its core in the sense where it's, like, through a poor recording process. Yeah, it's low fidelity. Yeah, like, yeah. It's, it's... That's exactly what I said. It, it's not studio quality. Exactly. It's it's far from it, right? Like, it's it's recorded through, you know very rudimentary means but does that make it a lo-fi album and i felt like yes but not necessarily in the sense of lo-fi as a genre i think it just puts it in the wrong place for people to find it if we categorize it as a lo-fi album because most people that are habitually listening to lo-fi will probably not they want chill indie beats to study and relax they do they want the chill indie beats and this is this is so far from the chill indie beats very sad very angry yeah oh yeah yeah but like even like if you think about zoomer lo-fi today right like lo-fi hip-hop and stuff like that that kind of stuff came way after the fact of lo-fi indie which was around since like the mid 90s right now steph i know that you said that you had a problem with the production on this record do we want to jump in let's hear it so i haven't been saying anything similarly but okay i think you know you talking about sorry daniel johnson yes and like the origins of you know, JD. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ooh, <laughs> you're getting personal yeah, with that. I'm getting Intimate. personal because um, I'm about to trash this. Um, <laughs> but no, I'm not. I actually like overall, I enjoy the album. But yes, I have an issue with the production because I think it's one thing. I do appreciate the fact that he did record this during COVID and I get that. But I think from an auditory standpoint, it's just like if you don't need to record this way, why would you? It makes zero sense to me. It seems like a reach to try to be like Portlandia era hipster, and I cannot stand that. So you know far before Port- Portlandia, no, Portlandia wait, wait, stole from wait, him. Wait, one second, though, because I, I think I agree with you, Steph, on the sense like lo-fi comes from uh, being poor and not being able to go to a studio right like not being able to have the production quality necessary and then people picked it up because it became like uh like a trendy style in order to record because a lot of people were doing that and like garage bands were doing that and stuff like that like the strokes early stuff was considered Mm lo-fi and um but then it became very trendy thing to do so i think when it comes to the lack of desperation like he didn't need to record it this way yeah i think either you have to think of it as an artistic thing or was it like a trendy thing yeah, uh, well, and I do think that... Let me finish before yeah. you get Yeah, you go ahead. You go <laughs> ahead. Oh, Dean, Dean's brain is swelling. He's got a big vein on his forehead right now, just pulsating. What I can appreciate about this, though, is the fact that you can see... So I definitely... When I made the comment that I didn't like the production to you, it was before I'd actually spent time listening to it. Looking into the background of it and the lyrics and how it's crafted and written, you can tell that this guy is a genius like a flat-out genius, and I'll give you that. Um, But I still maintain that, like, if the fact that he recorded this during COVID and lockdown makes me respect it a little bit more, but if he hadn't have, I probably would have just, like, not bothered with this album because I don't understand the purpose of recording 
lo-fi when you don't need to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're I not would doing counter it out of desperation. Yeah. Uh, I would counter. I, I appreciate you calling him a genius. Thank you. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I, like you I would say if he had compliment. never done lo-fi or this style before and then just jumped into it now, it'd be off-putting. It'd be weird. But the fact that like he sort of grew as an artist through the Panasonic and like through this medium. Uh, sort of lends it a, a it's like a call a genuineness it's not yeah. just a callback it's a love letter to like it is. learning to play again right. in that way yeah. and like to say that there was no desperation behind the album i think is a little moot because like sure. there are so many people on his tour that like aren't getting paid like don't have money and it's not just like the band that doesn't have money the proceeds from the album didn't go to him like they went no. to like his actual crew not to the band i agree yeah. that it, it's a hard yeah. start for somebody who's not familiar with it like i would probably probably start somebody with all hill west texas uh it, yeah it dip- i would say if listen, I had to start listen with to like all that. hail and then we listen to tallahassee yeah. and if you like the former go backwards and if you like the <laughs> latter go forward yeah because it's hard because you can only like i feel like listening to some of it can be really difficult if you're not ready to like take the time to like it, parse it, this the is a band that like you take or leave yeah like the really really early stuff like i really like we shall all be healed like is one of my favorite albums mm-hmm. and like looking at that but then like full force galesburg was hard for me corners gambit hard for me to like get into the first time yeah, like i really had fair. to like that's take fair. time but then like tallahassee i listened to it once and i was like this is a masterpiece yeah. easily yeah uh, there uh, one more point before we move on and that's that uh, I think it's important to note when it comes to like him deciding to record with the Panasonic with this lo-fi sound is that this was recorded in what was and still is like a really scary time where no one really understands what's going on. And like I can't speak for JD. I don't know what his thought process was. But for me, hearing th- an album like this uh, in a style that I'm so used to and like with the, uh, in the style of the albums that I go back to again and again and again, it's like it's very comforting. Uh, it does feel like a, re- a return to home in a way. Now, oh, do you, for sure. Now, do you think, like, you're you're not going to like this, but I would like to hear what you have to say. Do you uh-huh. think it was uh, a fan service then? Like, do you think he did it so that he oh, would please yes. the people that are listening to I don't to think it? he does anything to make anyone happy. No, he's, like, famously has not contempt, but just sort of disregard uh, for the fan, or maybe he just if puts he had that never on. gotten picked up and never gotten popular, we would have gotten the same album in 2020 as you we really, did. Yeah, you really think so? 100. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because like the Mountain Goats are a band that sort of never picked up and got po- like they got more popular, but they never broke out. Should we move on uh, from uh, 2002 and into uh, 2020? Uh, and the second man whose uh, name shares this album, Pierre Chauvin. All right, so. <laughs> He wrote a very, very, very famous book um, for us classics and religion nerds called uh, Chronicle of the Last Pagans, and it is amazing. So I'd never really dove deep into this specific book before, um, but this is my area of research, so I got very excited. But this book is all about the Greco-Roman era when Christianity was starting to take over the Roman Empire and the effect it had on these pagan groups uh which is fascinating because it's during this time there was a lot of back and forth about laws over what you were allowed to practice and what you were not as well as um kind of the punishments for if you were to practice these religions um and it's quite interesting because people quite often don't think about what these pagan groups were doing but 
that is how Christianity got its foothold. Yeah. And not only did it get its foothold by like destroying these religions, it also got its foothold by taking a lot of practices and customs from these religions. Um, I keep saying religions, but technically they're called cults. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's just <laughs> my supervisor's going to drop me. Uh-oh. The interesting thing that I find uh, about this story is when I was taught in history class about this era, uh, I learned about how the Christians were persecuted and fed to lions and all that fun stuff. And then uh, Constantine uh, saw a meteor, and then he was Christian after that, and the empire was Christian after that. And that's sort of all we talk about. Yeah, that's, that's not uh, even actually the true story. Sounds, no, Constantine no. didn't see a meteor. <laughs> that sounds kind of cool, though. Like, that sounds like the Marvel, like, abridged version. It is, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, but uh, this, like, Shuvin here uh, has written sort of history from the loser's perspective, from the people who were on top and, like, were persecuting Christians and then over the course of I don't know how many years, uh, the tables turned and then they were persecuted by Christians that they had been holding down for centuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, th- These weren't actually the people that were persecuting the Christians, though, just to clarify. No? no. So most of the people that belonged to these pagan groups were part of mystery cults, uh, oh. which actually have a history of being banned um, mm-hmm. starting around like 200 BC, roughly, give mm-hmm. or take. I think um, oh, I have it written down. Yeah, so originally Romans, there was a huge ban on a lot of these mystery cults from 186 BC because they were often these groups that would kind of go into the woods and get drunk and dance and like all those kind of like things we romanticize about like Greek mythological culture is yeah. like what these groups were doing. Really? Um, and they were actually seen on the outskirts of society. Uh, I personally have a belief that they were seen on the outskirts of society because women were in charge, but that's my own okay. beef. Okay. That maybe I, I had it's no idea because like I thought like <laughs> the ro- like there was like the Roman pantheon with like Jupiter and yeah so uh, Hellenism Mar- right Mars and all yeah I thought like that was like the major because I know uh, Rome was like pantheistic and as far as I understood like uh, there were some like cults that were persecuted but for the most part you could believe whatever you wanted to believe as long as you paid your taxes no one cared yeah. Uh, and the only reason they persecuted Christians is that they were monotheistic and were telling other people that their gods weren't real. I was going to say, I think there's a difference between like the public monument, like religions, like the one that's mentioned in the song, like the temple of Isis and the temple yeah. of Jupiter. And then like would have been um, like the the Delphines. I can't remember. I used to know, but my brain is gone. And that one guy with the ox head. Yeah. No, they didn't wear cool. so Mithras? Him. Mithril? I don't know. Maybe. Who knows? Mithras. Mithras. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so there was a bit of a difference. And so the mystery cults were, yeah, these ones where you had to be like initiated into. So they were a little more like quote unquote questionable, um, versus a lot of these would still adhere to the same gods that the public religions would, but in very different ways. Um, so the one that kind of always gets thrown about is the cult of Dionysus or Bacchus, Mm -hmm. Roman or Greek, whatever you prefer. And that's where we get the term Bacchanalia from, which is awesome. The fun wine god. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that was the big one that, um, that was probably one of the bigger gods that they had these mystery cults to. um, But there was a lot more. Yeah. Well, and I think that we get into that a little bit in, um, I think it's their gods do not have surgeons when he talks about Isis. Also folks, this is an album which has a song titled their gods do not have surgeons. Come on. <laughs> Come on. How is this not the greatest album of all time? Dean, you're really, you're really 
that is what okay but it comes right after the you? hopeful assassins of xeno which is oh also very God. good it's so and good. then it ends with exegetic chains we will get into that that's a there's great a story name. behind that title there's a million stories behind that title <laughs> so the first track uh on this record is alon raid uh so i don't know you probably know the history more than i do based on my yeah. googles yeah i spent some time uh yeah. <laughs> so this was a call out to in uh about 386 when bishop marcellus of apamea came to alon um and his goal was to basically destroy the cults that were practicing there and instead he sent all of his soldiers off to raid the building and all of the pagans found him and burnt him alive that's right yep uh so uh this is a uh classic uh goats bit where you start with this it's it's uh the album starts with a triumph uh this is uh, a record about the fall of the pagans and they're sort of scattering to the winds but we start off with this great victory uh where they defeat their oppressor uh, they burn him alive, uh, and uh, they they w- they win one, score one for the boys back home. Ayo. Um, I say in classic mountain goat fashion, he's gonna make you feel real good before he makes you feel real bad. Exactly, exactly. And it start like specifically, you up to tear you down. Um, uh, like there uh, in this song, you can find uh, hooks, like sort of things that JD comes back to all the time. Uh, one is rebellion against an authority figure uh, that is successful uh and two uh the sort of preoccupation with with youth uh and a a tight-knit group of weirdo friends uh because jd um uh, was an addict for uh, much of his uh, young adult life and while he was a teenager uh so he became very very close with other addicts and sort sort of uh, the castaways, you know, people who didn't really fit in, goths and um, uh, prostitutes and uh, you know people in the gay scene uh, in the eighties in Southern California. Uh, so uh, that sort of uh, having a pagan crew, uh, as he sings about in the chorus, having you know your tight knit group of people that you can do anything with. Uh, even though you are persecuted on all sides, is sort of a fantasy that he comes back to. Uh, but, you know, it's comforting. I like it. I was going to say, you see it so much in, like, the the feeling of Alpha Rat's Nest comes yeah. through in so many times in this album just as a whole. Yeah, or even Up the Wolves. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm going to bribe the officials. Gonna I'm going to kill all the judges. The one that I had was, um, was it Against Agamemnon? from one of the early unreleased yes. albums. Yes. Where I was, like, listening to this, and I was like, I've heard this before in 1996. Let's go <laughs> so back. So good. Uh, yeah. So um, up next, after that like fun little jaunt uh, in Alon, uh, we move to uh, Until Olympias Returns, uh, which was uh, the se- its second song. It was the first single that was put out. Uh, and it is a doozy. There is a lot to unpack here. Uh, but do you want to tell us about Olympias first? Sure. So Olympias was a very famous queen who was also well-known. Are you thinking of a different Olympias? I'm thinking of a different Olympias. Like I want to hear about this one, though. Yeah, so Olympias was a very famous queen um, where she was also well-known for being a huge proponent of the mystery cults and one of the very few like major rulers that was like very obviously a part of these mystery cults because normally they were pretty hushed about it, um, which is a pain, by the way. As somebody who researches this, there's like 
very little information about mystery cults, which yeah. is why they're called that. Well, they that. were mysteries. Yeah. Uh, so she also was part of the cult of Dionysus, um, which is awesome because she was part of this like bacchanalia that made everybody kind of hate on, you know, these mystery cults. So I think, I don't know, I kind of got from this that they were saying, you know, that's kind of like pinholing her as a very prominent leader of this pagan identity. Yeah, this, uh, I think this is the most interesting song on the album. Uh, I think there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, What I found uh, was that Olympias was a dude uh, who uh, was a a neoplatist sort of anti-Christian leader uh, in Rome, um, or not in Rome, sorry, but in the Roman Empire. Uh, He was, um, hang on, where do I have it? Where he was from? No, I don't have it where he's from. Uh, But uh, Olympias uh, was sort of leading uh, pagan revolts uh, until um, the Saint Theophilus, uh, who is a patriarch of Alexandria in the 5th century, uh, came to town uh, and basically ousted him because uh, Olympias is like, oh, they're going to kill me if they find me. So peace, I'm leaving. Uh, So he ran away uh, to like the hills, basically. Uh, and uh, this song is about waiting for Olympias to return, right? Like, until Olympias returns. Uh, mm-hmm. So it there's two very different perspectives depending on who we think this Olympias is. But it also could be both because based on what I've read about uh, the mountain goats is that they will do this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, 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 they're like, you're right. The mul- but you are also right. The multiple <laughs> references. Yeah. 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 Fan like theories. Fan theories seems to be a big part of the mountain goats. Um, yeah. Community, which uh, tends to really throw me off sometimes. Sometimes I really like it. I don't know if it's fan theories. I think it's just like an absolutely like single mindedness at recording everything he's ever said at any interview, concert, interlude or conversation anybody's ever had with him. Cause you can just like go through and like search every single thing he said in between songs in this one concert in yeah. Dallas and why like would you ever do 1997? That <laughs> and it's just like, it's not a fan theory. It's just like, Oh, if you're willing to read the annotations that are so vast like you can just like come to multiple conclusions about right. anything I, it's right. def- that's definitely a, a part of mountain goats fandom though uh is especially because jd will often sing about characters mm-hmm. uh and fictions uh that reoccur across albums uh he'll reference a person that he wrote about last 15 years ago and people always try to connect the dots uh so there there's this sort of uh need to some people find like a need to sort of unify and like write like chronologies and biographies of these people uh which like i understand the impulse to do but sort of is against the point uh because these aren't real people and they are mutable and they just serve functions in songs as they go uh but uh and that happens not only with his real characters uh but with or what sorry uh that happens not only with the characters that he's written, but with like the real people that he writes songs about, which he often does, uh, including Olympias. So whether he's singing about Olympias uh, the queen or Olympias the Neoplatus man um, has vastly different uh, implications. Uh, but why, why don't we dig into this song? Um, yeah, I found um, just 
my my little comedic thing and i know yeah. it's not meant to be funny right but the second verse when he says taste everything they feed you say it tastes real great i laughed it's good i laughed it's so hard line. i was like ooh. <laughs> Oof. yes but uh yeah so this song uh is as many mountain goat songs are instructional it is the narrator telling you a series of things you have to do uh to achieve some larger goal uh and the basic gist is that uh, you are being told uh, that you uh, have to go through the motions. Uh, you have to basically play nice uh, with the Christians who are ruling over you right now. Uh, it's assumed that it's Christians because it's from the pagan's perspective. Uh, and just wait. Uh, this is just a ripple in the stream. This is just like a momentary moment. Uh, this is fleeting. Everything will pass. One day Olympias will return and we will bring back the status quo and everything will be back to normal. Um, so I read this song as like explicitly political uh, in a lot of ways. I don't know what you guys think. Uh, I don't know where it is on the political spectrum, though. I, I don't know whether this is a song from the perspective of like a fascist reactionary or a sort of like leftist uh, revolutionary. It's unclear. Uh, I, don't I think it's strategically unclear, though. Oh, it definitely because is. Because I thought about this song for two hours straight. Yeah. <laughs> really? It's very like perspective of the oppressed waiting to make their move. Right. Right. And it, I think it's, you know, when when we get more into some of the later songs, like it's very evident about like these people were getting literally killed. Exactly. So, you know, it's waiting for that leader, whether it's Olympias one or two, I right. guess we'll put the label on for now, that, you know, waiting for that leader to come back and say, okay, guys, like, let's go, let's form our revolt, you know? Right, like, but, like, that's the thing. Like, is this Olympias, is it, like, the, the matriarch, the, the queen who will come back uh, and uh, sort of represent and protect these cults? Or is it Olympias, the Neoplatus, the man, uh, who's going to come and like wreak hell and vengeance upon these Christians who have persecuted his people, right? Because like waiting, like uh, the way I read it um, in a fascist way, uh, these are people who want to live the way their grandfathers did. They want to go back to some like long forgotten golden age. Uh, and the only thing that can happen is if there's a strong male leader that will come uh, and oust the the elites who are controlling everything um, and making it hard for the true Romans. That is intensely fascist uh, yeah. and very reactionary. But uh, it's it's very left. But it can also be very left. Wait for their female leader, who's part of this female-led mystery cult. Yeah. To come and redeem them. And like know? there there are like uh, specific uh, passages here. Uh, he talks about um, uh, raise up the columns, take the statues down, uh, which uh, rings out very resonantly now, uh, more so even than it was when it was recorded two months ago yeah. uh, with all this uh, news about the uh, the Black Lives Matter program. The, the other point that I would say, though, is uh, the people that he's singing about, the pagans, um, lost. Yeah. Olympias uh, didn't return. Uh, he never came back, uh, at least the one that I read about, never came back to well, the place that know, he left. Well, you know, the female one died in like 300 exactly. BC. <laughs> so like uh, if if this is supposed to signal a leftist uh, revolution, it is one that is doomed. 
Uh, so maybe we don't want to think about that. Yeah. Okay. But super quick, going back to the statues point, though. Yeah. What's interesting about that is, you know, taking down statues, they probably would have been instructed to be taking down their own statues, mm-hmm. not like revolting and taking down the statues of the oppressors. Right. Right. Because like in, yeah. in the in the instructions of this song, you were supposed to just play your part and play along with the Christians. Yeah. Uh, so when they say raise up the columns, take the statues down, they're referring to statues of like Greco-Roman gods. Yeah. You know what's interesting, though? I'm sorry. I feel like I'm taking up a lot of the mic today. No, you're fine. No, no. <laughs> um, I really like in verse one, it says, listen for the hidden rhythms on the air. Yeah. And so this is what my whole thesis is on. Um, but basically how when Christianity was taking over, especially in like the early, like third and fourth centuries, uh, they basically outlawed all percussive music because oh. it was seen to be part of the mystery cults. Um, because typically in these cults, it involved processions that included a lot of dancing to percussive music. Right. So they, the early Christian music, there's a lot of stuff about you only sing in unison, no drums, only melodic instruments, and very few melodic instruments at that point. So I thought that was really interesting because I don't know if it is actually him going that deep or not, but like listen for the hidden rhythms on the air is... It, it's almost like listen for those things that like signify your group of people, right? Yeah. And find those things that you're not allowed to do, but like it's going to be there anyway. Right. And like this, this is another, uh, like I could just go on for hours about uh, not even references, but just sort of um, what's the, not cliches, motifs. Uh, like uh, I could go on for hours about uh, these motifs that occur again and again across the Mount Goat's oeuvre. Uh, and listening to music that you're not supposed to listen to is a big uh, JD fascination. Uh, he's always talking about finding hidden stations on the AM band or uh, when your parents are fighting, listening, uh, going up to your room and listening to dance music to cope. Uh, so uh, especially in this song, though, uh, with if, if we're viewing it through a political lens, I see like the hidden rhythms on the air as almost like conspiratorial of like uh you're not like yeah you're playing along with the status quo and whatever everyone else is doing but you know the real truth and you know that olympias will return and that the you know the second coming is upon us um uh, and it's sort of it, really sad that that didn't happen it didn't happen at all but it, like it has this sort of paranoid desperateness to it that i really really liked can i have a hot take yeah okay about Um, paranoid desperateness no no Mm -hmm. not even it's just about like the intro to this album i felt really bad like i was really dismissive of this album from the Mm get-go and hearing the first couple tracks i had my beliefs reinforced that this was going to be someone taking a very well written book and kind of dumbing it down right (laughs) And, and that's kind of what i got from it and hearing you guys talk about this i'm like Wow, this just makes me really want to read the book and not super look into the lyrics as much. You know what I mean? I d- am well, I the I only one 100%. who feels that way? I was like, I was like, wow, this makes me want to actually like do the research and look into this. Rather, it it seems more like an advertisement for the book because the book sounds like it actually covers the questions that you guys are asking right now. Well, 
I I would ask you if you expect an album to give you like a nuanced and detailed uh, history of Rome, or yeah. do you expect it to put out some songs that are yeah, fun yeah. to listen to? No, yeah, definitely, definitely, one hundred percent. That's why like the uh, the topic of the album kind of threw me for a loop for a bit because I'm like, why why this? Like, I understand the relatability of it. Yeah. Why do you think that uh, John would have picked this one up of all things? Uh. This, like, again, mythology and, like, uh, the classical world is something that he's always written about and always been very interested in and then sort of left that as he matured and started uh, talking more autobiographically. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I think... Um, I think there's a lot, a lot of connections, like even like as I've said just now, like comparing uh, this song and the return of Olympias to, you know, like reactionary politics or left wing revolutionary politics. There's a lot to be garnered uh, between comparing our age and the Roman Mm -hmm. age, right? Mm -hmm. Like where both of us are like in the midst of living through a dying empire. And we get to look at the other dying empire that happened 2,000 years ago and be right. like, oh, how did that one die? Yeah, w- crazy. It, it sort of tracks. Yeah, yeah. I guess uh, the the abstraction of it where you can take this very straightforward retelling mm-hmm. um, and kind of apply it to other things. I feel like if you can give me some examples of when that happens, like when it's brought back into the – when he kind of puts it for you so that you can apply it to – other current day things i feel like we'll get a little more in depth into that in the last track yeah because i think that um i was having the same problems as you and i still okay so i still maintain that i know that you two who know the mountain goats better say that he's not pandering as to his fans but i really think he is he's pandering a bit to his fans and to his intellectualism by creating this because he doesn't really get until the last song where he is more reflective about how do we kind of make any link whatsoever to contemporary day. Um, and even then it's minor. So I think, you know, he, I think he is pandering to his fans in a bit just by the style that he's doing this in, even in this song, like he starts it off with that, like weird, all hail the mysterious gap yeah, bit. That that is. Uh, it's very fan pandering. <laughs> it is. That. I kind of. I did like that. I thought yeah. that was kind of exactly, charming. Because like <laughs> whenever he does that, I'm like, oh, I'm charmed by you, John. Oh, yeah, yeah. every time. I no, thought it was kind of yeah. charming. And, and and there's nothing wrong with pandering to your fans. Like yeah. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. But playing to your I crowd am, is a less. Uh, yeah. Is a less negative light you can put it on. Like, For yeah, sure. I would say yeah. like I wouldn't use the word pandering, but that is what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, but like I, there are a lot of like as I've said a lot of specific references to old songs that everyone loves yeah Uh, Yeah. so it's it is it is fan service yeah but i think too it is very like high intellectual show-offy of like i read this impressive book and now i'm gonna sing about it while also making all these connections to all my old songs to make me look like a genius (laughs) you know and like (laughs) that is a hot take though That that is a very hot take maybe he's not that intentional about it but like there are there is that kind of breed of intellectualism that happens especially in the u.s but also in canada of people who like to show off how smart they are 
I, I like I he's. What do you, yeah, what do you got to say? I was about gonna it, say Frankie? it's it's really hard for me because nobody said anything about this when we did Aesop Rock. Everybody was like, "Wow, he's really smart. I like right. it." That's true. And like he's That's an incredible true. like intellectual Aesop lyricist. Aesop was constantly and like he's to things. maybe like we didn't <laughs> catch the references, and maybe because he's less lyrically dense than Aesop Rock is, it's easier to be like, "Oh, he's referencing this." But like with Aesop Rock, like every single line was a reference to like a piece of classical literature, another piece of hip hop music like another artist that was working in the field, another actual artist that was like working in the 80s and 90s or it was a reference to media from the 80s and 90s. Yeah. And it's like, it's hard for me to be like, yeah, he's pandering when like we just listened to a hip hop artist where the person was so incredibly intelligent, but because we liked the music more, it was, that's not pandering. That's exactly it. And it's like, oh, is yeah. it just like, we like them when they're smart and like it's easy to groove to, but we don't like it when it's smart and there's a book and we don't groove as I much. I don't like when it's smart and he chose I to record like it. I only like stupid music. <laughs> no, I, I like idiots with guitars. I like that's it when, why I like this band. I like no, it when he dumb. I think it's the fact that, yeah, so I think my issue is that because he chose to do it in such like a hipster way of like, look how cool I am. Why is I'm recording a hipster thing now. But I, like, I feel like, like I'm recording just... on this weird boombox device, lo-fi, and I'm gonna be super smart. And it, whereas, like with Aesop Rock, I was impressed by the fact he chose to work with a really unique producer to create a really unique sound, and then showed off. Like there was more thought that went into his intellectualism yeah so yeah. you like it when they're you extra like it when they smart. think more harder i feel i feel like if you're gonna use that brain you better use it my way <laughs> you better not do <laughs> sideways like, boombox. but i i i i, I feel <laughs> like i i i get what you're picking up on uh in the sense where like <laughs> you guys suck <laughs> Sorry. Let it be noted that Frankie and Dean just dabbed. Uh, <laughs> no, we're doing like sideways. sideways oh, I thought you guys box. were. I thought you guys were dabbing <laughs> over there. It looked like dabbing. Yeah, for me, I think uh, if we're gonna talk about like references in music and like when it becomes appealing and when it kind of becomes standoffish, I think the difference is with Aesop Rock. When we listened to that, it was a lot of references that a lot of us didn't fully get. But he also throws in references that all of us totally know because it's 100% common knowledge. This whole album is based on a book. Oh, that not is common not knowledge. Like you have to be a specific age. You're talking about like Looney Tunes and stuff. And yeah, you have stuff. to be a yeah. specific age. If you're going to ask a 12 year old what the hell yeah. Looney Tunes is, they're going to be like, is that Big you're Chungus? Right. You're right. I, I just don't. feel like um, I feel like this being a full album referencing one thing in particular is very different from something that's referencing pop culture through time. It, it's, and I, I don't think it's necessarily fair to compare the two. It, it's undeniable that like there there is a, a certain a certain stink of hipsterness uh, to this record and to the Mountain Goats in general. Like they write songs with the titles "Their Gods Do Not Have Surgeons," uh, <laughs> "How to Embrace a Swamp I Creature." I was going to say, can you just give me like the title from one song off of? Is it Exodus? That has uh, yeah. See, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, it, like it's, a, it's mildly quirky, it's, little it's intellectual, quirky, but like it's. At least the way I read it and the way that I know JD tries to portray it is like, yeah, it's like sort of like high intellectual, whatever, like he's reading like an academic book uh, about the pagans. Uh, but there's an air of uh, 
I don't want to say irony, but sort of like he's thumbing his nose at it a little bit. Like he wrote a song called Exegetic Chains, yeah. uh, which is dumb and silly. And like it's he has fun with it because it's silly. Right, right. Uh, and like I didn't see it. It's silly at all. I, I, I saw I, it as very strategic. I, what's the lyric? Um, As long as the second rock hits his head yeah. or hits you. I was like, haha, yeah. That's Stone right. Stone them to death. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> it's funny. Like and uh, another thing that I would say is. Yes, he's writing about events that happened almost 2,000 years ago uh, that are in many ways completely unrelated to our current uh, time period. Uh, But he writes it specifically from the perspective of the pagans and individual people. Uh, And it adds a sort of warmth and a humanity uh, to it that I don't think you get in Shuvin's book. Yeah, uh, if this had oh, not been sure. from like oh, the okay. victim's perspective, I think I would be a lot less angry about it. But I'm like, we're literally like we're like religiously prosecuted and ousted people, and we're dealing with that so much now, and it makes yeah. it really difficult to be upset about the intellectualism of I, it when yeah. you're like, it's the victim's perspective. It's like I think when uh, we read, um, it's it's the personalization. What's it called? King's what? book, where it's like. Thomas King? Yeah, what did he write? The nonfiction? Incon- inconvenient Indian? Yeah, where it's like from the perspective of like An indigenous person retelling the history. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, it brings like a level of personification to it where it isn't just dates and names. It becomes like, mm-hmm. no, these are feelings that people have. And even you know when what? it is just yeah. dates and names, it's those dates and names mean things. I love getting convinced. Like, I like being wrong. That I actually, you, you've kind of won me over Thank with the you. purpose of it. Because You it's haven't like, won me over yet? Well, that's we're okay. getting there. That's okay. Should we just, move on? I was uh, going to say, just on this point, like, uh, yeah, like, uh, it makes sense to me. Yeah, like, I, I, I get it a little bit more. I, I, I guess I was the gatekeepy one when really I thought he was. <laughs> <laughs> no, but let me just clarify yeah. as well. I still think he's very smart. I just, I'm not sure if I'm convinced with the fact that I like the intellectualism he is breeding. Mm-hmm. I, I I will admit that there, I've been to a, a fair number of Mount Goat shows, and there are always a few. They're normally young. They're like teenagers who uh, sort of look like how I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and yeah. <laughs> I, I could have guessed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and. Uh, like you can there's this sort of an air of superiority and they like uh they and maybe i'm projecting this uh but they sort of see themselves like ah finally i'm i'm among my people right the the people who really get it they They listen to the mound goats they must be so smart they think they're and they understand everything even the fact that the reason most people know about them is because of john green and he's like the height of intellectualism america what did john intellectual like teenager america Uh, he he always writes about them in his books does he not oh is that the he's like the little like the teenager author yeah the ya dude fault in our stars and yeah that guy oh is he the guy who was like i smoke because i love God and hate everything or something. Yeah, yeah that's it, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you literally just figured out yeah. John Green. You don't have to read his books at all. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about perpetuating weird intellectualism. Like, we have the 11-year-old stoicist and the 140 <laughs> cigarettes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's cool. But yeah. it, And I think that's maybe... That's why I struggle with, like, do I like this album or not? Because on one hand, I do enjoy that high intellectualism because that was me as a teenager i love john green i watched dawson's creek and talked like them which let me tell you if you've ever watched dawson's (laughs) creek they're the most like it's that over the top language for teenagers to be using and like very self-reflective and very like internalized emotions that they need to outpour onto the world like that kind of person the existential 
like conversation that exactly. happens constantly. Yeah, like you're a 15 year old and you're having existential dread already, yeah. you know? And yeah, yeah. so I can be sympathetic towards that. But on the other hand, I hate every little bit of it. Yeah. <laughs> Which also means I kind of hate myself. Think, so, yeah. But no, anyway. And that's totally fair. Like uh, to finish my, my anecdote about these children that come to the Mountain Goat show uh, is that they come with this air of superiority and this idea that like they are among intellectual peers. Uh, and then they quickly realize that everyone there is just there to have a good time uh, and like doesn't really care about proving how smart they are. Or like how many like references they understand uh, from how to embrace a swamp creature, or whatever. Uh, and once that realization happens, and like this is something that I went through with this band, uh, you just sort of uh, you connect more with like the actual like emotional weight and and like the the characterization. I was gonna say of, eventually everybody starts chanting Marbaduke T-shirt incident instead of no children, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like. There, I think there there is a sort of like pseudo intellectualism that surrounds this band, uh, and a lot of I don't want to say not their real fans, but the people who uh, <laughs> they use it as a tool. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it I is. What yeah, you mean. they like use it to like patch in like part of their personality. It's like people who have two thousand one Space Odyssey posters in their living room. Exactly, and they've never even watched and the they've movie. They've never even seen the movie. Yeah. like someone uh, who sits at this table. Okay, it's my girlfriend, <laughs> not mine. Uh. <laughs> the, the last thing, the last thing I wanted to say about this, real quick, because we do have to like actually talk about the songs at All some right. point. Yeah, I'm sorry, is, that uh, was a little bit. If of a... you take a step back from the album and put the book aside, uh, it the album is still easily understandable and doesn't, I think, contain the same traces of like that pervasive intellectualism because it's just there and you still get the feeling of each song because you don't need the page references from the book to understand the album as a whole you need the book to understand the history that inspired the album but if you take the book away i would really question anybody who would say there is high intellectualism in these lyrics if you just take a look at it there's a lot to dig into if you want but they're pretty but the emotional through line is there and i just think if we did if you just remove the book for a minute yeah remove that that side of like the academic and everything you take a look at the lyrics like it doesn't necessarily have to only be this book and like that type of academic writing and i think if you take take the time to like look at it from the perspective of like a teenager in Tallahassee who's 16 and listening to this, it's going to mean something different than it does to us because we're all incredibly educated individuals. And I think sometimes oh, we you. need to take a <laughs> take a second and remember that like all of us have degrees and have been at university for many, many years. So it's easy to take the label of like antiquated like intellectualism and slap it on an album that's got a book name in the cover. Yeah, true, true. My and, brain like, immediately went to it's not like, it's not. I don't know. I don't think it's fair to like just judge it by like how much it references the book and like i think it's a big failing of rap genius that they keep putting page numbers for the book for what each song means because it makes it very easy to just pick and be like okay yeah that's obviously from page 78 or like that's obviously from page 84 yeah right but it doesn't have to be there on another end of things i think there is a lot that you can't grasp from without background knowledge and not necessarily of the book like he has other references in there um and i think this might be a good segue into the next song because like i look at the lyrics for that and the chorus is one summer then all this is gone one more summer then no more swan and i think unless you know the background of the link to the swan that makes zero sense yeah like the maybe one summer then all this is gone is like okay I, i could 
but a does a song or a poem need to make exact perfect literal sense no. Yeah, no. Let's all remember, uh, are B, we human Does it or not still dancer? make like emotional sense? <laughs> when that he says, one line. more summer, then no more swan, do you not feel? Do you not bleed? <laughs> gasp at Kalama. Yes, um, I have d- a lot of information. No, night. I don't. I only have a couple. I have a page of notes on this song. Well, Dean, you're a madman. Let he who is without sin tell us about Kalama. I will. Thank uh, you. So um, <laughs> uh, this um, Kalama is a was a town in present-day Algeria. Uh, and in 1408, uh, despite it being forbidden by... 408? Fo- yes, in 408. Pardon me. Uh, so in 408, uh, despite it being forbidden by the church, uh, they celebrated their traditional summer feast uh, and then proceeded to have a big riot uh, when s- people tried to stop them. Uh, and they destroyed churches and they stoned Christians that uh, met them with opposition. Yeah, so the goddess that was celebrated at Kalama was the um, goddess Callistus. Uh, so she was also known as Tanit, who is, you know, okay, this this is my issue with all of Greek mythology and two all names? of Roman mythology. No, no, no. Um, oh my gosh, there's even more than two <laughs> if you really get into it. But all female goddesses are the goddess of fertility. Yeah. But anyway, so she was the goddess of motherly, nurturing, and fertility. Um, but she also dope. was considered a great enemy of Rome, and she okay. looked over the village of Carthage. So a lot of hate was around for this cult, especially because everybody started making up facts that they were like into children yeah they were into child sacrifice Mm. which fun fact there's actually like zero evidence yeah they They have not found any remains uh, of child sacrifice they also said that about olympias that he was a child sacrificer yeah that was like their they also said that about like antifa which is crazy yeah Yeah. jews antifa jupiter Uh for sure but one thing i found interesting that we can like tie through some of the other songs is Mm she was also considered like the serpent lady. Oh. Um, and the imagery of Medusa. snakes come up a lot. Again and again yeah, in this record. Yeah, in this whole record. And I thought that was interesting because snakes in Greek mythology are the messenger between like our world and the underworld yeah. because they're seen to like live in cracks in the ground, which I thought was super fascinating because cool. I think they get into it on the next track. Yeah, yeah, the next track is for the snakes. Yeah, so... Anyway, it was just super interesting because then they ended up losing anyway. I don't know if you got this far into it. Yeah, this is well, this is the last gasp at Kalama. Yeah. Like they so they failed directly after this. Bishop Aurelius ended up entering the temple, like into her temple, which mm-hmm. was said to have been guarded by snakes, and just like sat on her throne and was like, This is Christian now. Um, but then they kept fighting back against them. So the Christians ended up just like flattening the temple completely and like leaving. <laughs> yeah. Like Frankie was saying earlier about how uh, JD will start us out on a happy high note and then bring us down. Uh, within the first three songs on this album, we go from Alon Raid, which is a like strategic military victory against the Christians, to Until Olympias Returns, where they're occupied and they're just waiting for their hero to come save them, to Last Gasp at Kalama, which is, okay, like, we know we're rooked. Like, there's no getting out of this. We're going to have one more big feast, one more summer, then no more swan. This is the last hurrah, uh, and try to take down as as many of these people as we can when we go out. Um, uh, The thing, like, yeah, this song... For me, it was very Daniel Johnston. Uh, I got big Daniel Johnston vibes mm-hmm. from it. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, 
this again uh another uh, uh another motif in Malgoat songs is understanding that like all of Transcendental Youth, their 2012 oh, so album, good. is about understanding that you are doomed and then oh. going on anyway, which is exactly what these people do. So it's sort of like youthful, romantic, like summer rebellion. Uh, <laughs> you're that that's that's yeah. what this song is. No, for sure. Uh, for but sure. like of of course, like after which your temple will be destroyed and your people will be you know, completely subsumed by this like monoculture. I feel like it, it made it sound almost like it was worth it though. If you're going to get flattened yeah. anyways, you might as well take out a couple on yeah. your way down. Exactly. And like uh, the thing that I especially liked about this track, and it comes up again later in the album, is using Christian teachings against the Christians. Christians. Uh, so uh, like you referenced before, let he who's without sin throw the first one like you said. Let anyone else throw the second as long as it connects with your head. Uh, so sort of like taunting the Christians being like, oh, like you're you're prosecuting us. You're attacking our, us in our temples. Uh, but like, are you without sin? Like, how could you how can you persecute us um, even though you're supposed to be like, um, you know, Oh, I love that feeling. Nice. Like, I love yeah. it so much. And it happens so often. Like Heretic Pride is one of my favorite songs. Oh, it's yeah. Such a banger. And it's just talking about how. Like, if you're going to go out that way, like, you might as well go out as kicking and as screaming as humanly possible mm -hmm. to make them as sorry for their choices as you as an individual <laughs> can, because that's all you have left. It's so good. This this is a sequel to Heretic Pride, basically. Oh, oh yeah. Except they get to, like, he yeah, gets, except to, they're the ones he gets to throw things. a rock. Yeah. yeah. So the swan. Well, first, I, I'd also like to say uh, they also talk about. They're like they say last gasp at Kalama, but there's still like a little bit of hope because they do say uh, they'll do what they're going to do anyway. But Carthage may rise again one day, uh, which uh, knowing that they were worshiping the patron god of Carthage uh, is very, very cool. But also like Carthage was sort of the last like great threat to Rome. Uh, there was the Peloponnese or was it what was Phoenician it? Or was it not the Peloponnesian War? Is that what it was it called? It was when they salted the earth. Is that what you're yeah, talking about, right? Yeah, that was the right? second. Yeah. Um, Punic like War. Punic War. Yeah. So there were like two major Punic Wars that Rome uh, battled with Carthage. Uh, and Rome won both of those encounters. Uh, and after that, Carthage basically, like they salted the fields. Carthage was wiped off the map. It was never a big player in the ancient world it's again. It's such a legacy, though, because, like, it was one of the few cities that they couldn't incorporate yeah. into, like, their... Because they're like, it's okay, maybe you can still, like, chicken? <laughs> and maybe hate snakes? And Carthage was like, no, 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 no. Like, we're literally going to burn everything ourselves if you start trying to do it. Exactly. So, like, I don't know whether the uh, singer wants Carthage to come back because they're done with Rome. Uh, and they like just want to go back to uh, you know pagans on a in a far off land uh, that they can you know worship their god, or whether they want Carthage to come back to challenge Rome uh, and to sort of bring things back to the way they were in the golden years of the Punic Wars, back when Rome was like righteous and good at least days. according to them. Well, and that theme comes up as well in uh, their gods do not have surgeons when they yeah. talk about the Temple of Isis in Memphis. Yeah. Because it's like making, like rebuilding a location for these cults to go. Yeah. But, um, so we, we talked about the swan earlier and how the swan uh, is a symbol that no one would really understand uh, just on its face. 
Do we want to try to crack it? Try to figure out what we think it is? What you uh, got for the swan, Dean? I've got some things. I don't you know if anyone swan, else has some things. Some swan well, research? Well, I saw on Genius that it links to a Tennyson poem, but I didn't get into it. It does link to a Tennyson poem, uh, which is, like, fair enough, because, uh, like, the swan in, like, ancient Greeks uh, was, like, a symbol of beauty and uh, nature, but also death, like, the swan song was supposed to be the most beautiful song you ever heard, but it only happens after the as the swan dies because they they're mute besides that. Isn't Which is not also true. Also, Zeus turned into a swan to seduce somebody to create the egg that would birth Helen of Troy. You're exactly right. Oh, bingo, bingo, big bingo. Brain uh, so, Leda and the Swan uh, is yeah. uh, a classic Greek myth uh, that's been like portrayed uh, in paintings throughout history. Uh, but specifically, uh, I'm interested in not the Tennyson poem, uh, but the Yeats poem, Leda and the Swan. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is because uh, Yeats was uh, obsessed with this idea of like cycles of 2000 years and how like religions rise and fall. Um, and he saw like when he was writing uh, this poem uh, in like the 1910s, uh, he saw us at the end of the Christian era and the beginning of a new era that we didn't quite understand. Uh, so, uh while Leda and the Swan takes place 2,000 years before that, at the beginning of the Christian era, uh, with uh, Zeus taking the form of a swan to seduce uh, Leda, who was the, uh, the queen of Sparta. And uh, that uh, encounter led to, as you said, Helen of Troy, which started the Trojan War and sort of ended the mythological age and began the classical era, as we understand it, where this song takes place. Uh, so when he says no more swan, what is, is he talking about, you know, like the beauty, like this, this is like the, the death song of his people of the pagans or is the swan Zeus, who is this, you know, like this all powerful figure, uh, this like masculine force imposing itself on humanity. Uh, because like Zeus, like Zeus as the swan it's unclear whether it's the, some people frame it as a sedu seduction, but in the Yeats poem, it is very clearly a rape. Um, and uh, whether like, you know, these pagans, these, this persecuted group um, are like sort of idolizing and worshiping like that sort of like masculine destructive tendency, whereas the Christians were pacifist and, you know, uh, nice supposedly uh, so voice. it's weird like both neither side uh is purely good as like all of history is i guess uh but i don't know what do you guys think where are you on this because i don't i honestly don't know where i am uh, i don't know for me like the the swan is a symbol of like the <laughs> crossroads between like humanity and the mythological age yeah and it's kind of the ending of any kind of um communications that the like the hellenistic like cults would have in between like their gods and like themselves right past this point where their temples and like their places of communication were being like burned and destroyed and like their practices prosecuted but it also um is a symbol of like violence and beauty at the same time and so i think the thing that i enjoy the most about this album the way he portrays like the air quotes like losers of this side of victory is that he's not praising them as like peace loving people he's still being like no like these are still like dangerous yeah. practices that contained violence it wasn't all like beauty and singing and like 
bacchanalia for me a lot of the swan symbolism just coming back to like the Tennyson poem is like something that is beautiful but because it is so beautiful it also is dangerous because it clouds your mind's eye to what could happen to you when that thing comes closer because also swans are just scary as hell oh yeah because they're so big and so strong and very frightening and so for me that's what it was it was like the the communication between the cultists and their gods was being broken by not being able to have that communication anymore like the symbols are gone right i think it's interesting though like if we're talking about the swan as like a image of death as well um then why would the like second verse end with so much hope right of like carthage is gonna rise and you know you're gonna get what's coming to you kind of thing Uh, i i don't think this is a whole whole song i think this is a song uh where you're at the point where you've abandoned all hope and as such you're not really sad or worried anymore you're just like, ah, whatever. This is the last gasp. Like there, there is an understanding that like they are doomed and their cult is doomed. Uh, but even in that understanding, there's still like a whisper. Like at the very end, he can't help but put in, maybe Carthage will rise. Yeah, you know? I almost feel like the course in the verses live independently. You know, like the verses are very like the pagans at that moment of like, this is what we're going to do. We're being hopeful, maybe... Um, whereas the courses are kind of like interjecting in that of like, but yeah, maybe not. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. like that. Uh, anyway, should we move to the snakes now? Yeah, yes, like more I snakes. Wanna, I want to talk more about snakes. For the snakes uh, is the fourth track on this record. Uh, and as we were saying before, it's got a lot of serpent imagery, uh, which I read just as like explicitly not Christian because like the serpent, you know, is the devil in Christian uh, mythology. So just being, uh, just basically saying to the Christians, you know, like you're having your fun right now, but eventually your enemy will rise. Uh, and it's, it won't even be us. Like the pagans, like, sure. Like maybe you wipe us out. Maybe like we, we lose our history to the ages, whatever. Uh, but one day this empire will fall and all that will remain are all that slither and crawl, uh, which I didn't mean to make rhyme. Bars, my guy. Thank you, my dude. Uh, (laughs) but yeah, um, I, I sort of like that, like, it's almost sort of like an ecological statement is sort of how I read it. Oh. Like, there, I, in the battle of ideologies and these, like, religious battles that are taking place, uh, at, at the end, nature is all that will prevail and take over. Uh, and I just have one more thing to say, is that this is the second song in the Mountain Goat's oeuvre, which is specifically about snakes rising and taking over the world. Very cool. The first one is called Super Genesis. It is great. Aren't snakes also a very pro-pagan image? It's because they're like symbolic of uh, rebirth and like regrowth. Because that's they yeah, that's and stuff. I thought there was tons of symbolism in like uh, the pagan mythos. That's why you get like that symbolism. Like what's it called? Um, Steph probably knows the medical band where it's the two snakes. Oh, the caduceus the rod. Yeah. rod. I, yeah. Is it caduceus? No, it's something else. I can't remember. I like, uh, I like the word caduceus because it sounds yeah. like skadoosh. The skadoosh, yeah, the skadoosh, <laughs> yeah. Staff of Hermes. Staff of Hermes. There's also there's also like the imagery of the snake eating its own tail. Or the yeah, rod of which the they reference uh, in this record. Uh, in I think it's hopeful hopeful assassins of Zeno. Uh, when will the serpent uh, devour itself longer than we think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think I think snake imagery is not only like Christian fear, but mm-hmm. also it's very much pro like pagan and other religions because a lot of religions use the snake as like a very like pro-wisdom symbol and like rebirth 
and like uh, the shedding of the skin and stuff like right. that. I feel like for a lot of religions, it is a, a very pro symbol, whereas in Christianity, it's historically seen as uh, like a negative symbol. It's an incarnation of Satan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, um, you know, even especially with the story of like Adam and Eve and stuff like that and the way we think about that today. Uh, snakes, you know, tend to be the the slithering, conniving ones rather than mm-hmm. the actual like purveyors of truth where a lot of uh, religions see it, a lot of other religions see it. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, not only, like I said, it's not only like a anti-Christian sentiment, but it's also just like a pro-pagan sentiment. Yeah, and like uh, this song in particular, uh, all of the, the things that the people, the Christians have built uh, are seen as, as cheap imitations. There's cracks in the marble. It's all, like, it's all fake. They're all like not real and true. But what what is real and true are the snakes that will come and take over. Right. Uh, so sort of turning that like snake as the trickster, as the liar on its head. Yeah, yeah. And same with um, like natural imagery as a whole in a lot of like pagan uh, religions or like, you know, pre-Christian religions even um, tended to be like, like nature was the thing that you worshipped. Mm-hmm. Right. And like things growing was what you wanted and i can imagine that like rather than building a temple just as like a symbol um you know you would see things that were naturally formed as a temple rather than like you would build something to signify your belief system right 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 so i think i think that definitely goes hand in hand it's like it's a weird like eco crit thing but also definitely like that is exactly i read this song specifically in like an ecological context yeah I think yeah you're exactly right yeah and but also it, it definitely ties into like as far as i'm aware very early pagan beliefs i think mm-hmm. it's even like earlier pagan beliefs because i think they're willing to say like at this point in the failure of their ability to punch back against the Christians that they don't even care if they come back. Yeah. Yeah. It's because just that, that what was there before either like the Hellenistic cults or Christianity, like will come back again. Right. And everything will fall. It's not just the, the statues of Christ, but it's also like the statues yeah, the of statues like the with God. Wings, yeah. yeah. Literally. Yeah. Like everything even themselves mm-hmm. are, are going yeah. to, it's going to end eventually. Exactly. Like in this ideological war, both sides lose yeah. and then nature reclaims it. Yeah. Yeah. But, which is like a huge win for the pagans. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, even if we're gone, yeah. if nature wins in the As end, long as you lose. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but speaking of pagans living in nature, uh, the next track here is the wooded hills along the black sea. Yeah, but like I, I love uh, the wooded hills along the Black Sea. I, I think it's one of their best Casio keyboard song. Uh, it's just like it's so much more complex than the earlier stuff that he used to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, which like even like songs on like perfect, beautiful records like All Hail West Texas, Blues in Dallas is not a great tune. It's not very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like hearing this progression. Just it warms my heart. So it's it's good because you've noticed that his work has gotten better, it's markedly better. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I I, I can imagine that. I was thinking uh, when I was listening to this track, the thing I liked is that it wasn't good. Genuinely. Yeah. I was like, this isn't. This is this is what I like. It's the most I basic like, 
piano melody I've ever heard. I was heard. like, I was like, and this it repeats itself over I was like, and over don't again. listen to blues in Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I or love any other pop music, but yeah. <laughs> I was like, I love this because it's not doing anything else, which a lot of the album is doing. Mm-hmm. And even when it is doing something else, like pulling in the Casio keyboard, putting a drum track behind it, I was like, this is so straightforward, not trying to pull the wool over your eyes whatsoever. It's literally just here it is. You, you, you know, think this song is more honest than the other ones? Like less smoke and mirrors? Because I think they're all yes. very... Really? Because I find the whole album as a whole... Uh, the whole album as a whole. Uh, yeah, yeah. I find the album as a whole uh, very... Like to the point like I've thought of the song. I've written it down. I'm turning my b- boombox sideways and then I'm recording. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no. Um, this track, for some reason, it, it hits me differently because it reminds me of how you would write a song before it's actually produced like the other tracks a lot of people can pull off the i'm a dude with a guitar and i'm singing Mm -hmm. and like but that's like the full production of a tune right right this sounds like the pre-stages of a song this sounds like a song that isn't even written yet like this sounds like someone trying to work something out and being like does this work does this sound good and then just it's on the demo now you know what i mean like it sounds like someone who had the idea and played it and was like Okay, yeah, like this this in itself is all right. Yeah, I'm very excited for like when we can go to concerts again and see touring bands. Oh, God, I'm doing this. I, with the full band, this song with the full band. That's oh what I mean. God. That's it's what I mean. So I, I kind of like God. this because it's one of those things where in your head, like I, I can feel where the rest of the music is. Yeah. Right. I also personally, this song stood out the most like musically wise because... I think the lo-fi recording with the keyboard sounds much better than it does with guitar chords because a lot of the like heavy guitar chord music just kind of blurred together. Yeah. So like all yep. you heard was just like this wall of sound of like coming at you and you're just like, okay, whereas this you're like, oh, I can follow a little bit of a melody. Yeah. Yeah. Like this sounds like, um, you know, someone had a few drinks. It's 4 a.m. at their friend's house and they found the keyboard from the closet. And turned on the drum machine. And turned and, on the and drum machine. And made a song that sounds like an old scary computer game. And that and that's but that's what you do. Yeah. Like that's what you do when you're you're kind of stuck creatively. Like you just you mess around. And I'm not saying that it wasn't deliberate, but what I am saying is like this to me sounds less like the aesthetic side of things. And it's more like this is the basic rudimentary, we're not even filled out whatsoever, like this is not what you would necessarily put on an album unless mm. you really wanted someone to think that, you know, I'm working with very little right now. Like you wouldn't throw this on the album unless you wanted people to realize how little you're working with when it comes to like what you can record with and what you can write with. Right. Right. Like it sounds like he's trying something different and he recorded it and now it's just happens to be on the album for us to listen to rather than him deliberately um, you know, writing it in this fashion. Like, I feel like if he could have, this song would have been much bigger than what has showed up on the album. And I kind of like that. It's 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 kind of humbling in a sense. And it's a lot of like, the, the music makes me feel like it's like you're working with yourself, right? Yeah. Which a lot of the album does give across as well. But then we've also heard tons of music where the be all end all is a guy with For, a guitar. I don't know about you, maybe. It felt a lot like, um, is it Wild Sage? Like the walking song, yeah, yeah. Where not I, not musically, but like um, yeah, emotionally, like, where it's like you're 
obviously planning mm-hmm. on killing yourself or you're going to be dying soon and you're noticing like small things yeah in corolla so the yeah. reason i wanted to talk about this song though in conjunction with january 31 what you didn't say juxtaposition i purposely didn't say juxtaposition <laughs> in noticed. conjunction with <laughs> january 31st 438 is because of the fact that they both deal with the repercussions and the punishments of being pagan so up until this point we've been really talking about like the persecution of the pagans but not actually the fact that like this was an illegal practice so if you were caught participating in anything that they would normally do you for a while you were sentenced to death so then when we get to the wooden hills along the black sea that's when the law changed in 421 so that rather than being sentenced to death they were just exiled and then in past that on january 31st 438 that is a nod to the oh who wrote it that's a nod to the date that um the codex theodosius the codex theodosius was published and it actually made it so that rather than being exiled you were sent to death again so it's this really interesting comparison between like this one moment of like maybe hope that like well, we're exiled, but like at least you can still practice, you can do what you want, but you're just like exiled, which sucks, but you're not dead. Right. You and know? When you compare the two songs sonically, it's interesting because uh, The Wooded Hills is very like somber and melancholy and slower, while uh, January 31st uh, brings back the guitar, the like peppy, like fast strummy guitar. Yeah. Um, and he, he's talking about dancing, even though. Uh, it's a song yeah. about how his him and his people are going to be executed for yeah. what they're doing. Well, it's interesting, too, because there's nothing about that song that's happy, like thematically wise, because they're talking about like the famine. They're talking about death, you know, and yeah, they're they're still dancing. Whereas in you're right in like the song before it's somber and like lyrically wise, there, I don't think there's really anything that like sticks out to me that's very happy yeah you know yeah uh, again another typical mountain goats trope uh is the like song detailing like tragedy and ruination uh that's like so up tempo and he's just it sounds like he's singing about candy bars uh (laughs) it's great yeah Yeah. i also really like the the intro bit so it was 438 the year that this uh declaration was written Mm -hmm. yeah so like the intro bit on that song is where he talks about um he's like sorry guys i'm not in tune or whatever uh this isn't in 440 sorry about that and then the song starts so like 440 is the the hertz in which uh, the tonal a like the the note a that you tend to tune to Mm -hmm. you can also tune to other uh things a lot of like modern orchestras tune their instruments to different uh hertz in order to get like a different sound right um but like 440a is like very standard tuning style so like him being like oh yeah this isn't in 440a and then the song's called 438 and yeah. like it, it's like it's i don't know it's very tongue-in-cheek and also yeah. i'm pretty sure it's actually down tuned just like that slight amount where your ears can't actually really parse it out but it knows that something is different that's so clever so uh yeah like i i loved that he's like oh sorry guys this isn't super in tune and it's because like he's talking about the year 438 not tuned at 440 probably actually tuned at 438 again you can't really tell but it's definitely something that he did 
but like uh even like being in the full heat of the moment uh is something that like a jd is claiming here but also uh many of the characters within like this album but like this song specifically uh are people who are sort of like swept up in the zeal and the uh you know their devotion to their god they're dancing with the ones what yeah. brought them so uh, I, I think i think on one hand like you know, you could take it as him being very earnest about the like recording style. On the other hand, I think it's a callback to how he used to record, and also the the comparison of how he used to record things and the people that are in this moment that he's describing. Mm-hmm. It's really like, uh, yeah, it's beautifully ironic, like the yeah. the comparison that he's making between um, the tenets of Christ and like the way he brings those up a lot and then uses them against the Roman soldiers when he's talking about who do you want at your side at the end of things and like talking about starving to death and how like a lot of the tenets and the commandments are having to do with like love and acceptance and like all of that type of stuff. And I think he's drawing more on like the more current understanding of those commandments than what they would have been doing like at that point in time. But I think a lot of this song specifically is the irony of like prosecuting these people to death and like to starvation and isolation outside of their communities and he's like talks specifically about like crushed like a seashell on the seaside warrior's foot like just completely ousting these people from the community entirely where he's talking about he who without sin like throw the first stone or yeah. how you measured so shall you be measured and all of these different uh catchisms and it really like becomes very bitter for these two songs especially no i just i thought it was interesting too i like the line let me go down dancing let me be the last one left um especially because in comparison to the uh what was it until olympias returns where they're saying oh well we'll do what you guys need us to do because we're just waiting patiently for Mm -hmm. us to have our moment this is just a brief improvisation in the dance is what he says but now they're like well, let me go down dancing because they're going to they've realized that they're really out of hope and mm-hmm. they have to just, you know, do what they're going to do. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, most of the mystery cult idea, especially when you look towards like Dionysus and what you see in like the Bacchae and stuff is all this like dancing imagery. And it's really what sets apart, you know, the mystery cults from, you know, like the traditional gods that they would worship or later christianity right um and you know like dancing was pretty much outlawed in christianity until like 20 years ago yeah you know? yeah like there were certain after um footloose but oh, after footloose yeah. came out yeah. like after kevin bacon was yeah. it kevin bacon it was kevin bacon saved i was looking for the name the world against yeah. the people that said dancing was bad but that like we laugh at that but that's like exactly it it's this idea that like dancing makes you hypersexualized yeah, and, and is, sin, make, is gonna yeah. make you sin right and like it's gonna make you drink more and stuff yeah I, um, and it comes from this yeah, right i had no idea like i just thought like uh dance with the ones that brought me was like a cute way to say like oh i'm gonna worship my god i just thought that was like oh no, like, but they did yeah, it for everything though it wasn't just like processions that were like celebratory it was also part of mourning where yeah. they were like dancing and like they would do like the screaming and like the hair tearing and like yeah. they're beating on you their would, chest and would, playing other instruments there'd be instances where you dance until you faint right like you would just dance until you essentially collapse to in order to show that like you've put that much effort into the dancing. Mm-hmm. Well, it's right. also that was like part a of the main idea part of, of things. That too. Yeah. yeah. So um, it, it's that idea of like 
music plus movement puts you into an altered state of consciousness where you're more susceptible to having these kind of religious experiences. Yeah. Um, which there is merit to. Like, they've done really cool scientific studies on it. Um, so, you know, the Christians weren't all wrong. Huh. <laughs> it's like, hey, how are we going to keep these people from properly celebrating their religion and being feeling like they have certain religious experiences and it was monkey brain like the thump thump yeah That's yeah right. exactly if i beat my chest hard enough <laughs> if i beat them hard enough <laughs> yeah but it's very true right like yeah. in, and you see it in religions all over the world and that's yeah. why dance tends to be the main thing that gets cracked down on not only because it's a very public display of like your uh devotion to whatever religion it may be um but also yeah it it, it has a lot of like strong uh spiritual and emotional baggage to it yeah and i i think even more so um it brings about community so like you never really see people dancing on their own solely right right most of the time if someone's dancing they're with other people or they're at least dancing for other people Mm -hmm. so there's a certain part of um like embodied community ritual that Mm -hmm. is very solidifying in how religion is kind of maintained from this community standpoint so like you stop the dancing you stop the community mm-hmm. you know that's a good way to like uh nip it in the bud dean i want to hear something about this track uh their gods do not have surgeons i know you have some feelings about yeah. it uh it has a fantastic title uh honestly <laughs> this is not one of my favorite tracks on this list oh really um it's just like a little too slow and sad for me um I really like the lyric, give me back my community. Uh, I think like, especially uh, considering how this record was written in quarantine, that rings super, super true. Yeah. Uh, right. uh, not being able to go to concerts uh, and to like be with like the music community, mm-hmm. the, like the, the, the concerts that he was supposed to attend. What do yeah. you think about the second verse? Cause that was the one that made the song good for me. <laughs> um, yeah, I agreed. Like a lot of it, it was really somber and I was, I was already sad. So I was like, mm-hmm. I don't need a lot more, but I really liked the lines. Their hunger was like a worm inside them. No sacred place could be denied them when they talk of beauty or they talk all day of beauty, calling plain things dirty. Yeah. Yeah. I like, uh, again, sort of like turning like the, the Christian teachings against the Christians who were persecuted and now are persecuting the pagans i don't know if i I can't really necessarily think of a specific passage in the bible but i know that like the kind of theme of having a hunger for god is Mm -hmm. like talked about a lot in christian communities Um, their hunger like a worm inside them no place no sacred place could be denied them so like turning every single spot into this place where they wanted to find god yeah and then displacing other people's gods by doing this actually a really interesting like time skip in this verse like in this song specifically that you don't get a lot in the other places in the album because i know when we listen to like a lot of other mountain goat stuff there's a lot of like time changes between the characters and the song and then the autobiographical like kind of skipping in between like 30 or 40 years but this one it goes like melted holes in celluloid give me back what you've destroyed yes. where i'm like that is so that's another person talking like that's a different plane of existence that we're on for those two lines yeah and like it's interesting like i haven't mentioned it before but like throughout this record there are certain like moments where he lets the mask slip a little bit uh and he real like it's almost like he's like again he's playing characters he's performing but there's certain lines like that one 
melted holes in celluloid that the speaker, like the, you know, devotee of ISIS would not know about at all. Uh, So it's almost like the album is like zooming out and like we're starting like from this very insular perspective from Alon Raid to like a specific event that happened and then slowly zooming out to see like the wider scope of this story and these people and zooming out more to see John looking at these people and his interpretations and feelings around yeah. it. I think uh, that's a lot why I didn't need like the the book so much to make mm-hmm. it relatable. It was like these, I don't want to call them slips, but like the gaps in the personification of the characters yeah. where it lets you like breathe a little bit and like understand things from a different perspective as opposed to the, the victimization perspective that he's using for most of the songs. Right. And then like by the very end at Exogenic Chains, it's strictly him yeah, singing. It, it, it it's no changes. other character. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think it's kind of like the way you said it from the, the micro level to the macro level. Um, like you kind of go on a trip from... And, and it ends up feeling like what you're reading and what you're listening to is someone's thoughts on a book that they're invested in, mm-hmm. right? That has historical importance. And then how they're trying to piece it together with like their day life, but also while still just being very passionate and invested in reading this book, yeah. which is I, what I think happened. We're basically doing an album report on a book report that yes. JD turned in, but he he recorded it on yeah, Casio. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And we're recording it on... Uh, on whatever this is. Yeah, Can yeah. Upside down boombox, please, Dean. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll invest in one for the stage. But so I we think, can record it together. I yeah. think even like lines like that where you kind of take another step back and it, it sounds more like you're you're learning about someone who's learning about something yeah for the first time i also think going back to your idea of zooming out i really liked that because i do really feel like this album does that and i think that's why i like how we've kind of gone through it song by song um which we don't normally do we normally just kind of jump around wherever the conversation takes us um but i think as well you know like this is the first time we've even discussed uh one of the egyptian gods which is very interesting and isis had the most widespread following so they had people following her from england all the way to egypt wow yeah so big deal because it spread across the whole roman empire so folks do we want to end on the most interest interesting track here exegetic chains uh (laughs) steph what is an exegetic chain well so exegesis is the practice of a critical reading of a book but most specifically it's used as a reading of scripture right yeah i don't really? understand the chain part of it it's just uh, like so a fancy word for quote. exegetic chains uh is a phrase that shuvin uh uses uh towards the end of the book uh referring to his own interpretation of uh what he's uh talking about he says something like let us not get uh wrapped up or uh ensnared in my exegetic chains uh, oh, okay. which, uh, again, like sort of going back to like the pseudo intellectual nature of this band, uh, is something that, uh, John would be tickled by because he like just the idea, like that's a funny phrase and it like is. a very academic, uh, phrase, uh, and then sort of taking that and deconstructing it and being like, not like, Oh, look at these fancy words that I know and I'm using, uh, but sort of turning them into art and turning them into something like approachable and human uh and like using like this jargon that is sort of uh in many ways barred from normal conversation uh and like only academics can use this very precise language uh and bringing it to 
uh, his listeners and being like, Let, let's play with these words. Like, they're not just for academics. Yeah, the very yeah. first uh, lyrics are, look closely at the shadows on the ground beneath the trees, the labors of Hercules. So for me, that's like, uh, again, exegetic chains. We've zoomed out directly to John's perspective. Uh, and he's looking he's looking at the shadows of the trees now and in it he sees the mythology and like the heroes and the monsters uh just like within like normal nature in everyday life like these myths still exist and inform like he's him today he's doing the level of abstraction that i was talking about earlier yeah where it's like you're applying these stories to the current modern day and what you see in front of you right exactly okay it, yeah. it's it is a part of who he is in the present day right but right. okay so do you know the mythology of trees and the underworld Ooh, what did trees uh, there's do there's a pomegranate down there right that's all i <laughs> yeah, know yeah what? yeah there's the pomegranate <laughs> only six story, seeds but Really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the mythology of the tree in ancient Greece, uh, especially more specifically cypress trees, but I think some of it can maybe be applied to here as well. Um, the cypress tree was thought to be the first uh, thing that you would see when you entered the underworld. So, like, that would be the signifying of you're dead. Um, okay. Because the idea was that a cypress tree, once it's cut down, it doesn't regrow at all. Um, so they kind of saw this theme and so that'd be the signifying thing of like, okay, you've entered the underworld. Um, and then there was usually instructions on like which side of the tree you have to go to. Um, and if you didn't follow these instructions carefully, you were doomed to purgatory basically for the rest of it. So in in a way, like, uh, we've reached the end of the album. So now it's sort of almost like, I don't know if it's the death of like the narrator or the pagans in general, but almost like. Uh, we've come to the 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 end of this album. We're like, this is like the the final choices, the final thoughts that we're making before we cross over uh, yeah. into the underworld of listening to not the mound goats anymore, <laughs> which is in a way like death. Well, and I think too, you can also look at the idea of like you know the labors of Hercules, right? Like he had to go through these things to become a god, right? Mm-hmm. But if he's also laying on the ground beneath the trees, he too is dead. Right. You know, these gods have also died. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, like Hercules, I guess, like is at the foot of the tree, but also in in the wild grasses on the hills, he sees Sibylle unchained. Uh, so Sibylle uh, was another goddess of like motherhood and fertility. Yeah, the same as all other goddesses. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, like, so that seems a little more triumphant to me. Uh, like she is no longer bound uh, and again, like tying the like the the pagans and their beliefs specifically to nature, uh, I find interesting. I don't know. I don't know about like the some of the the underworld images and like the death of the gods is coming through. For me, it was more like a midsomar and like the translation away from like traditional motifs to like a very real and like living and breathing example of like your gods in nature and so it wasn't the fact that the tree represents the underworld it's the fact that the trees are still alive and like the lines like we will never run out of trees or like we're hiding in the trees is such an important motif throughout the entire album and i think the implications of like the trees and like the wild grass and like the parts of the hellenistic religions that you can't get rid of or like the pagan symbols of nature as like wealth and regrowth is not destroyable by the Christian ethos, even if they try to change the meaning. And for me, it was not that that these symbols are dead. It's that you have to now look at them in a different way. Yeah. And that it's 
they've experienced their own cycle of rebirth, which is different and requires a different way of looking at it. So like the old ways of looking at them through like the lenses of like the systematic dancing and the temples and the mystery cults is, is gone and is dead now. But you have to look at like the dancing and the grass and like the swaying and breathing of the trees as something that is equally as um, important as it was when it was the temple figure. Yeah. And so for me, like that's, that was the change and it wasn't, like the death of the idol it was instead like the rebirth of the idol through um an individual lens that you can pan out or zoom in on as much as you need to right like it, it that's exactly it it's that it's not that like the pagan tradition is dead it's that it's hidden yeah, it's, uh and like even well, like say in the christmas time exactly yeah. Yeah, the, the, the songs you sing at christmas time the stories that you tell i knew them well mm-hmm. uh the with, coins they toss at dancers whirling in the city square Mm-hmm. Again, that dancing motif, right? Of like, there's still people dancing. Yeah, exactly. Like the, these traditions live, but like they they are an undercurrent. They are the the hidden rhythms on the air. I was gonna say it's like, um, and there's got to be an actual word for it, but like transitional worship, where it's like it evolves over time, and you don't realize that you're doing it, but mm-hmm. you are definitely still doing it, and like influenced by those original. I think it's um, yeah no it's like the malicious compliance coming to an end where you've maliciously complied so hard that the other side can't understand that you're winning yeah yeah, yeah. like they don't know like they think it's gone but you're like hey, well we we know what you're doing but that's okay we, we just won't point it out to you yet like we'll we'll hold on to that one we'll wait until it's so solidified in your traditions that you think that you are the ones who came up with this stuff <laughs> And then eventually, like, maybe we'll tell you. Yeah, it's a real, like, push me, pull you, like the two-headed llama where it's like, are you, like, is it because it's been so indoctrinated, like, into Christian practices that now this is Christian and, like, by practicing these things, like, they receive the upper hand or is it because it's secretly pagan that the pagans receive the upper hand? And you, like, from either side, right, you could be, like, some kind of little hope on that use of those motifs now. Right, right. Just how, like like I said, like, the transient nature of those um practices and like what they've evolved into or you know a lot of people would say they devolved but like more so it adapted into these different practices that we use on day-to-day in our day-to-day life and it's like who really has the upper hand here yeah Yeah, and i think you can see that too in the line where it's uh headed somewhere better if i have to crawl there on all fours because yeah i'm sure dean can go more into this because apparently this is a nod to a past I think song. Oh yeah, like uh headed somewhere better if I have to crawl there on all fours. Uh uh genius here says that it's uh hast thou considered the tetrapod reference which again another fantastic title. Very good. Uh very very good. Uh but yeah like JD like has always again he's uh constantly like brings up images of of snakes of things that have to crawl along on their bellies or crawl on all fours of like sort of like misanthropic like lesser beings um that he really likes like in uh damn these vampires he says uh someday he'll learn to walk upright uh but uh the thing that i'm really interested in here is the chorus and the phrase keep the chains tight because the song is called exegetic chains uh so when he says keep the chains tight for me that's um sort of keep your interpretations keep your uh like religious leanings uh your pagan beliefs to yourself keep that tight keep that close um 
And then uh, he says, make it through this year if it kills you outright, which is a specific reference to um, their most popular song, probably this year. Uh, which, which also is, has a line in it that says there will be feasting and dancing in Jerusalem next year, which exactly. I thought was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So it it all ties together, for folks. It's the perfect it's the perfect band in many Makes ways. Makes my little brain happy. <laughs> I yeah. think um, that it ties so nicely with what you said about like the zooming in, zooming out. Because for this, it's like it's it's dropped, and now it's a different character being portrayed. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I want to say like autobiographical, but certainly different from the voice that we heard throughout the other tracks. And it's almost like it's zooming out on like the mountain goats discography and like zooming back in where it needs to. And it's saying like, these are parts of like the old mountain goats. And like, this is like, what's he say? Like stay warm inside the ripple where it's like, this is the old sound that you're used to. And like, we won't produce that as much anymore because he's referencing like newer songs through the discography that have a different feel like this year and that kind of stuff. So it's like, taking a look at like oh i'm hiding that old sound in the new music and you just have to keep like thinking about the way that both types of the music that we produced coexist together and the way that it takes um both sides of like that kind of fan base that he has where it's like the classic mountain goats and like the new mountain goats and like mixes them together in a way where it's also like almost a religious blending yeah no i like stay warm inside the ripple Mm. of the panasonic hum uh i get i would not call that pandering uh, but it is very like uh, so an understanding like of how much this music means to people. Well, uh, it's just like you have so many people telling you that like they didn't die because of what you did. Like um, it must mean an incredible amount to him. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. And just like the the fact that like that sound and like that machine like can mean so much and like uh, attributing that like that again this like very small very insular group of people who have like strange a strange obsession with something that no one else really understands uh it's it's no wonder why he relates so much to the pagans you know and to these cults yeah dean do you want to give us a a quick send-off uh for this week's listening party thank you so much for listening everybody yeah thank you thank you guys my dear friends for listening to this album with me uh and uh being subjected to me talking about it for two hours i actually i i really enjoyed this i've uh, again i i keep learning quite a bit every yeah. time we uh yeah no do yeah, a deep great. dive even when yeah. i think i know something i learn something new which this is this has been which helpful too because uh i haven't been working on my thesis very much and this <laughs> this made me feel like i was so thank you all for listening to this week's uh listening party thank you for listening with us uh you can follow us on instagram at listening party cfrc and we love when people send us messages on what they think of the albums we're listening to as well, because we're only 90% smart. <laughs> Fill in the 10% people. Exactly. We do love fan participation. I was going to say one last one last line from my, my boy, my boy JD. Like, we, we can make it through this year. We can yeah. do it. We only exactly. got like five more months. If we have to crawl there on all fours. <laughs> we're all, yeah, just just get a lot of rocks. Keep them in your pockets. Y- you never know <laughs> when you're who gonna you might need to, need throw to cast them at. <laughs> Beauty. <laughs>